Hello, welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green, the podcast which accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's new one-day intensive course for paediatric orthopaedic part of the FRCS Orth Exam. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai. Um, and Michaelis Kokonakis is joining us from London by the miracles of modern technology. Uh, Michaelis, you and I have been running revision courses for, what, is it 10 years now? Right. Hi, Gavin. Um, I kind of remember, you know, it's certainly been uh, a few years now, um, and uh, every time that uh, we are ahead of a uh, uh, coming course, I um, feel the same excitement as I do now. We always come with something different and um, doing podcasts uh, for this one-day intensive uh, Orthopedic Research UK course for FRCS exams is just um, uh, great, I think. So I'm really, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Yeah, me, me too. Hopefully these podcasts are, are going to help people with their revision. The point is you, you and I have seen them come, seen them go. We have uh, done a lot of five-ring practice and exam practice over the years. And in that time, we felt, as we discussed what to do for these podcasts, we, we thought we'd picked up a few tips that we could pass on, not so much from, from our own experience as candidates, but more as our from our experience as mock examiners. So I asked you to have a think about uh, your three top tips from, you know, sort of summarising everything you've learned over the, over the last X number of years that we've been running these courses. Um, and I know you've given some thought to that. Um, I, I, I get registrars almost all the time coming to my clinic at the Avelina London or asking me to do mock Viva. So I have a lot of um, conversations with them and, of course, with all the courses uh, that we're doing. I think one very important thing is to see what kind of person uh, each one is and how they work more effectively. And this is very important for the preparation. Some people like reading from textbooks, some people like reading with others together. I would say definitely having a kind of a quick online reference, OrthoBullets uh, works very well uh, for this within a few minutes. You kind of know a bit about the uh, diagnosis. You should have a textbook. Um, a lot of people talk about Miller. Some people have more subspecialty uh, books, um, like there are a few in pediatric orthopedics that we certainly going to um, give uh, recommendations uh, during our course. Uh, but then again, it's, all, uh, it's also about papers. So me as um, a mock viva, kind of examiner, I'd like to uh, give kind of guidance to the registrars of a few seminal papers, very recent ones that they can read uh, from, because um, there's nothing better than mentioning uh, a paper. Even if you don't remember which group or which year, if you say JBGS last year, that, that, that's all what it is. You don't have to have exact figures, but you have to have a nice message from that paper, then you cannot go wrong with this. Um, is there anything else that you would say, Gavin, when it comes to preparation? Um, well, on that subject, should it be a textbook or should it be papers? I think that's very much a personal thing. One piece of advice I was given after I passed the part one and was coming up for the part two, so there's that gap in between, somebody made me realise that actually being at work was the best kind of revision. So what I found helpful was to have, actually, I used Miller. Um, I had that in my bag and I would try, whenever I saw a case... Um, and I'm not talking about paediatric cases here, any orthopaedic case, 
I would make sure that I used that as a prompt to go to the page and make sure I really had that core knowledge consolidated. So I, I think it's useful if you've got some sort of material that you can take to work with you. Would, would, you, would you agree with that? Well, you see, um, it has been some time since you've done this uh, carving. So I think now this is true. <laughs> so I, I agree. I, I used Miller and I used the Banaskovich book. But I think nowadays, instead of carrying books, people have mobiles with them. And that's, I think, um, have, taking notes from what you see, from the clinics you attend, from the discussions you have in the operating theatre. You know, every registrar should take advantage of this few minutes that they're left along with a consultant and ask questions and then just taking some notes and then you can go back home or when you're on the train go on the internet this is what i'm saying a good uh, website is always good and you can read uh, on the textbook that, that's the way that i would do it but um as we said earlier on everybody has his own ways how to be effective when it comes to um, revising and also there's, there's as you mentioned gavin there's nothing better than actually going to that clinic, you're familiarizing yourself. When it comes to pediatric orthopedics, a lot of people are kind of very worried, especially if, they're not, if they did not have a lot of exposure in pediatric orthopedics. So familiarizing yourself with uh, harnesses, um, when you talk about DDH, with uh, Ponseti casts, when you talk about club feet, you know, the, the examiner sees straight away that you've seen this and you're more comfortable talking about this. That, of course, is, is not easy for everybody to arrange. Um, and there, there is sometimes a bit of a gap between what you read in the textbook and what is actually used in, in the, what, how that knowledge is employed in real life. If you can go to a clinic, fantastic. I agree. That's first choice. It is something that we try and tackle in, in the FRCS revision course, with orth which Orthopaedic Research UK run, of course. We, we try and load those core knowledge lectures with as much not-in-the-books knowledge, as we call it. You know, what what jobbing streetwise orthopedic surgeons actually use so if you don't have that opportunity to go to clinic this course will hopefully give you a, you know some insight into the the sort of approach approaches and concepts and principles that make you at least sound like you you are used to using this knowledge on a day-to-day -day basis but it yeah going to clinic is ideal i agree and and do not forget about the videos of clinical examination you will have uh, us examining our real patients trying to make it as real as we can so they do, uh, all delegates familiarize themselves with this. Th that was what I wanted to say when it comes to preparation and when it comes to um, uh, mock vivas with uh, consultants and get the real kind of case scenarios. On the actual day, you have to, uh, as, as, as a delegate, you have, as a candidate, you have to look confident. You have to look fresh. You have to have had a good sleep and... Uh, you know, for those who smoke, please don't do it before. You know, you have an examiner in front of you. They might be tired. They might be, you know, they might not have had a good night before. You know, just be as, as good as you can. Present yourself as good as you can. This, this, this is very important. And what I would suggest is that's what I, that, that is what I did when I had my exam. That's, this is what I did every time I had an interview, is try to scan your examiner is this a guy that likes you talking? Is this a guy who has a lot to say, uh, that he wants to ask you a lot of questions? Try to find out within those first, those very important first few minutes, what kind of guy is he? And then take from there. Some people can do that, some others can't. I would say in general, don't talk too much. It's better to give short answers. 
active listening is very very important and just stay focused on uh, on what uh, what you're saying and again trying to have kind of social kind of awareness of your environment is the examiner bored is he disappointed is he crossed is he offended these are kind of things that you need to pick up straight away and either carry on or stop talking you know try not to say things you're not sure about because only only say and expand to those uh, topics that you can um, uh, answer more questions because the examiner will pick this up and at the end of the day uh, Gam, you know that you and I know that very well the um, the examiners want to make sure that uh, you will be safe and that's kind of the last thing before you uh, complete your CCT and you start applying for consultant jobs so people should see it like a consultant kind of interview it is very important so you have to impress yeah it's interesting you, you make the point about um, giving short answers it's, it's one of the things one of the common mistakes people make in vivas is to think i need to just keep talking keep talking keep talking if i keep talking i'm scoring and you can't fail me but there's a few problems with that um one is that you may not be talking about the sort of stuff where the points are you, and you may be spending you, you'll be through you know within about 60 seconds you will have told the examiner everything you know about the subject and, and the examiner might not be interested in that at all and that's the reason I normally advise people to give short answers but, but what you say about reading the examiner having the awareness of what is going on around you I think I think that is important because if you don't pick up on those cues the examiners are actually trying to help you if you're off topic they will try and guide you I'll give you an example I got asked in a trauma viva how would you manage this fracture it was a comminuted humeral shaft fracture in an adult. And I said, I would manage this by internal fixation, um, whatever I said. And the examiner said, oh, I see. Um, so you wouldn't make a preoperative plan then. Uh, you know, that was, okay. So, so I thought the examiner was asking me specifically, me, what would I actually do? That's what I thought that type of examiner was. But actually they wanted me to go back and say, well, there's non-operative and operative and, and so on and so forth, which I didn't do. So all you can do in that circumstance is take the hit, have your radar up, learn and make sure you try and rebuild that rapport with the examiner, which is actually quite easy to do if you're aware that the problem is there. I, I completely agree with you, Gavin. You can do that and you shouldn't let yourself disappointed. If, if you listen actively to what the examiner says and is trying to tell you, 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 you will be fine. I, I, I remember I got asked about pelvic fractures from a guy who classified uh, the pelvic fractures. So um, he wanted to, to, to tell me all these things. He had a lot of questions to ask me. So I kept it very short, short answers. It worked very well. So um, there's nothing worse rather than talking and not letting the examiner to ask you the questions that they want to, uh, to ask. And I think the other thing, uh, what I would say when it comes to um, uh, the uh, VIVA exam, people have to be honest. So it's not, it's not bad to admit that you've read about the procedure that you've been asked, but actually you've never seen this. Because people will know, people are doing those uh, procedures and it's okay not to get it right if you haven't seen it, but you have to be honest. Especially when some of the um, candidates will not have done pediatric orthopedics, so will not have had the exposure uh, like um, others. What would be your uh, kind of uh, tip points on the day? I think you have to be, you have to have done your core reading, obviously. I mean, that's a given, right? But 
one thing my top tip is don't ignore the chapter on normal variants in whatever book or website you choose to do your learning from the reason i say that is because we appreciate that you don't have a lot of time to revise this is one of the reasons we've decided to run the course with orthopedic research uk over just one day because there is so little time you've got so much core knowledge to to get your head around it's easy to forget the normal variant chapter on the basis that it's probably not that important it's it's not pathology anyway much better to spend your time learning about fibula hemimelia and tibial pseudarthrosis and scoliosis and so on all of those are of course important topics but i can tell you from from my personal experience in, in the exam and uh, no, it was a long time ago but they kept asking about normal variants by which i mean bow legs knock knees in towing flexible flat feet all of those normal variants which resolve uh, by themselves they kept asking me about these they kept asking me how i would communicate that information to parents how i knew it was going to get better how i could prove to the parents it was going to get better a lot about communication now i had neglected those topics and was impatient to get on to what i considered to be real pathology that was a mistake so i would uh, strongly encourage you to to read up on the normal variants why because it's a huge part of the paediatric workload not in terms of what goes to theater none of it does but in terms of the cases that come and see orthopedic surgeons the vast majority of it actually is normal variants unless you work in a in a tertiary hospital that is heavily triaged so that's my top tip normal variants and um yeah where where would you agree i mean where, where can you get experience of these kind of cases i i will agree 100 percent. And, and remember people know that not all candidates will become pediatric orthopedic surgeons so they're probably going to have a general orthopedic clinic in a dgh and what they're going to see from pediatric orthopedics are going to be those normal variants so they want to know that um, you need to know the essentials because if you don't, you might pass the exam if you don't diagnose the sporization of pseudarthrosis and you need you know, to, uh, to um, be asked a few questions to, to get there. But if you don't know about the selenius curve when it comes to intoing, then you're in a bad position. So I think normal variants are very, very important. What was your okay. second tip, uh, Gavin? Yeah, the second the second top tip is about when you're assessing clinical cases uh, and you're taking history. So here there is, to my mind, a big difference between paediatrics and adult pathology. Adult pathology generally in orthopedics um, is dominated by degeneration and pain. <laughs> that's that's the bad news, folks, if you're an adult. If you're a kid and particularly you're a kid who is coming to an exam, pain is unlikely to be your major problem. It's more likely to be deformity or, or a functional problem. Pain is unlikely to be a major feature. So your history is going to be a bit thin unless you ask specific questions about function. And what sort of function would you ask about? Well, it very much depends on what the clinical problem is. But as a general rule, you have to think about what is important in the function of a child. Depending on their age, they need, uh, they need all of them play. All of them need to play. All of them need to climb stairs. All of them need to get to school. All of them need to function within the school. And their parents are increasingly supposed to, uh, you know, have to look after them less and less than they become more and more independent. So, for example, questions like how far can your child walk? Or you could ask the child, of course, that's, that's another question. Who do you ask, the child or the parent? Maybe we'll come back to that. 
but you want to find out how far they can walk. Do they need anything to help them? How do they get to school? Do they do they get driven there? Uh, do they walk? Do they do they need some sort of other help? Do they have help within the school? Do they have a classroom assistant? Can they get to the toilet by themselves? Can they manage stairs by themselves? Do they go out in the playground uh, with the other kids at playtime? Do they take part in sports? These these kind of questions are, are the things that that really going to help you understand how pathology affects that child. And, and you have to get that information out quick because often the degree of functional impairment is what's going to determine the correct treatment for the child. So I always consider the this history taking as um, it's like the game hangman. You know, you, you have to get the answers out quick. Every question has to count. You, d- you don't have time to be a medical student. You don't have time for a review of systems. You're a senior doctor now and you're expected to get this information out quickly. I mean, those, the, those are the sort of things I, I thought about function. Uh, anything I've missed out, Michaelis? Any other sort of good questions you can think of to, to ask? I think, I think this is very, very important. And um, I would always start asking the child and I would ask kind of very similar questions but from I would ask the parents from the parents perspective so the questions kind of change a bit when you ask uh, the parents and their view is very very important I would always ask when it comes to to an exam what are the expectations of an operation uh, which I think is is a very important question which uh, not necessarily I think in adults is a bit more is about as you said is about pain and pain relief while in, in children, goals of an operation would be to go back to play, play with peers, not necessarily they have a lot of pain. So I think that's, that's another question that I would always ask. I think your last tip, Gavin. Yeah, I'll, I'll come to that. Just, just one point about who you should ask. Yes. Um, I think it's always a good idea to ask your first questions to the child or to introduce yourself to the child. And, and some children, particularly those who are used to being around hospitals, are very familiar with giving history to doctors. So use that. But if you're not getting that information, if the child is shy, then then abandon ship early and say, is it OK if I ask your mum or your dad a question? Oh, incidentally, good to just check who the carer is, because uh, that, that's a bit embarrassing if you if you uh, make a mistake on that one. So you maybe want to check who the carer is. Let's say it's the dad. And then you you can say to the child, look, okay, if I ask your dad a few questions now. The reason is because um, it shows to the examiner that you are you are engaging with the child. It's important to be nice. It's important to be likable. And, you know, you score points for this, actually. Anyway, so third and and final uh, top tip. Again, it's about history. And this comes from my experience teaching on revision courses. It is a, a, a red flag to me when the history starts to drift into the candidate asking about allergy history and vaccination history. That is a sign to me that they're totally running out of steam, um, have no more useful questions to ask and are simply playing for time. So if you feel yourself tempted to ask those questions, stop yourself. And I'm going to give you now some alternative questions. And this I have also learned from candidates, actually, because as, as well as seeing people make these errors, I've also seen some candidates do some really fantastic things, which I now use in my own clinical practice. So it can be useful when you you feel that you've run out of you've you've run the course of the history. You say, OK, I'm just going to summarize now. So correct me if I'm wrong. Johnny is five, has been limping for the last two years, uh, has been to hospitals, had some X-rays done, which show a problem with the hip. 
He goes to school, but he can't take part in sports. Is that right? Have I missed out anything? You ask that to the parent. The parent will then tell you. And here's some other screening questions. Can you tell me, does uh, your child see any other doctors, any other teams, any other medical teams for any other medical conditions? Does your child take any medications? And I did hear one candidate say, okay, that's all the questions that I've got to ask. Can you tell me, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think I ought to know? Now, you might think that's a bit of a cheat, but I, I was quite impressed by it. I, I, th- I thought it was a good, good way to make sure you haven't missed something crashingly obvious. Like if the parent says, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, we didn't tell you, but, but uh, Johnny has um, juvenile idiopathic inflammatory arthritis. You know, <laughs> that would be a bad mistake. So, so it's g- get some screening questions in, in there and, and use those in place of allergy history and vaccination history, because I can't think of any orthopedic condition where that stuff is relevant. Um, uh, I would completely agree. And I think the answer that you want the parent or the child to say, no, doctor, you covered everything, which is fantastic. You know, uh, tells the examiner actually, you know, and it tells yourself, just gives you more confidence that uh, you're actually doing very well. That, that's a very good point. And I guess we should also say that uh, on the one day course that Orthopaedic Research UK are running, there is uh, time for viva practice, isn't there? You can volunteer for that and, and you can do some viva practice with us. And we also have a habit of giving you afterwards what we call the golden answer. You know, we go back over the questions that you were asked and, and give you a rundown of what, what we think would have been the, the, the best way to answer those questions. Hopefully you will have done that yourself, of course. So... Yeah, I think that's it. Those, that's uh, three tips from, from you, Michaelis, three tips from me. I hope that people have found that useful. And so thanks very much for listening into this podcast. And we hope to have your company on some more podcasts in the series later on. Thanks very much. Bye for now. <laughs>